Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining us today is another very, very beloved guest, our former professor from Colgate-Rochester-Crozier Divinity School, and now a happy retiree, Dr. John Tyson. So thank you so much for being here with us, John. Really, it's an incredible honor. My my pleasure, ladies. It's awfully nice to see and hear you again. Yeah, totally. And in preparation for this interview, me and Jess both recently read, and I'm going to pull it up, Born in Crisis and Shaped by Controversy, which is one of John's two new books. We are told the sequel just hit presses. So yeah, um, just you you are such a delightful writer. And I, I had, I had read your work before, obviously, because I had taken multiple classes from you in seminary. And I believe I, even when I was going through the ordination process, um, we were tasked with reading another one of your books um, together when we were provisionals. It was, um, it was about Charles Wesley. It was about the hymns of Charles Wesley. I think it was assist assist Boom. That's it. Decent. Yeah. Decent. Yeah, totally. So um, we have, you know, benefited from various nuggets of your wisdom for a long time, even when you probably weren't aware of it. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say so. It's been a real joy. Yeah, totally. So you were on our very, very short list of people that we had to track down right away for our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So the first place that we always start these interviews is a, it's a beloved podcast question of ours to tell us as much as you'd like to about your spiritual journey. Okay. Well, I grew up in the Lower East Side of Pittsburgh. That's the side, that's the industrial side. Um, my father was a railroader. I have a steelworkers union card from the, um, the days I worked my way through college and in the days when Pittsburgh had steel, you know, so nice. those are kind of my roots. And um, I was raised in the Methodist church because that was the one on the corner down the street, more or less. Um, and like so many people in the late 60s, early 70s, I kind of felt the church was irrelevant or became increasingly irrelevant. Um, I was concerned about the Vietnam police action, as we called it in those days, and I had two friends that were killed there and one friend who came home and killed his wife and himself thereafter. So I really, that was not a a theoretical conversation for me. And I noticed the kids from my side of town were the people who were going, you know, that was the other thing that I noticed. And of course, then there was the civil rights and I was involved on that, the tail end of that with Ralph Abernathy and Jesse Jackson um, in Pittsburgh. And then there were the women's issues and co-equality for for everyone. And so by the time I got to college, I was kind of done with the church. And I kind of, my first two years, I would say I majored in wine, women, and song. And, you know, the song was only in the glee club, you know, so, um, but me, meaning purpose became a crisis and I kind of hit bottom and Thank God that sometimes when we hit bottom, we find our way back to, mm-hmm. to God, to Christ. I had a 
kind of a Christ event, the end of my sophomore year, beginning my junior year, and gradually kind of made peace with the church and my role in that and changed from business administration and advertising to Jesus advertising, I guess you might say, and Divinity School and then major ministry in Florida, First United Methodist Church, Cocoa, Florida. I was an associate there in education for a period of time and believe it or not, got involved in a political scrape um, there. The senior minister was moved, um, not at his request, and the rest of us were told to resign so that the new person who was coming in could build his or her own team. And that kind of makes you say, well, is this the way I want to live my life? You know, is this the way I want to live my ministry? So I asked God, what else, you know, and I remembered how powerful several of my college professors were in my reclaiming myself and reclaiming my, my faith life and my direction. So I said to God, you know, if you could make that happen, I'd do that. You know, if I've got the brains, who knows? I mean, at this point. <laughs> so I sent out five applications and told God, you know, my life savings from Divinity School is zilch. Um, so, you know, here's here's the door. You want to do a miracle? Go ahead. And I got in three of the five places. And one of the places offered me a full ride and others offered me partial funding and you guess where I went, you know, and met some really with it cutting edge kind of people there that I didn't expect to find there, quite frankly, um, at an Ivy League school, and was just really blessed with my education. And But there's always that nagging thing in the back of your head, okay, I've studied it, but can I do it? I've studied it, but can I do it? And so I kind of talked to God about that, and I wound up at a small Christian liberal arts college for small Christians in rural western New York. Um, put in 30 years there. First eight years, I was writing my thesis, so my dissertation. So I don't know where I was, and I, those years are just blurs, quite frankly, uh, in terms of my own life. But at, towards the end of that time, of course, I was doing you know, preaching out and taking interim positions and this sort of thing. But I also was looking for a road to something different. And that went to United Theological Seminary in Dayton and then to CRCDS in Rochester. And as I made those transitions, um, at the end of my 30 years, my wife, uh, Jill, was also diagnosed with metastatic cancer and in the process of ending her life. So that was really quite a, a tough journey with three kids at home and so on. And, and yet I was pastoring in Arcade, New York at that time. And I found a real family, you know, in my church, my church uh, people here. I'm talking about the building, but obviously the beloved people of God in that place. And so in a way, we helped each other through those last 10 years. And I was teaching at Rochester for five of them. So those were incredibly busy years also. Um, I have to say, I wound up taking the church in part because her illness was gonna put us into the poorhouse in bankruptcy. We're gonna lose our house and, and some other things because um, her treatments were between 25 and $30,000 a year over what good insurance would pay. So you either you either do the you either do the meds or you die, you know. And she had a goal to see the kids raised, and I I embraced that also. So that was started out 
for not the highest level reasons, quite frankly, became for me an incredible blessing uh, with the people in Arcade. And so I put in 12 years at CRCDS and continued to explore my own faith and my own activities and um, my own writing, my own spiritual development, and then retired uh, June a year ago to here to Baltimore, suburban Baltimore, where my eldest daughter lives. That's really beautiful. And I'm also, I'm so sorry for all of the loss that you have experienced in your life. Thank you. Especially, yeah. especially the loss of your life partner. Yes. Yeah, I remember that time. That was a, that was a tough time. It was mm -hmm. a tough time. Mm -hmm. We grieve with you. We really do. Thank and, you. It, it it also just sort of highlights that, I mean, this is what it, this is what it is to be a minister, that mm -hmm. you it, you know the pain of humanity much more intimately than a lot of people might think you do. Yes, and it's why it, 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 your calling comes from it. It's why you help people because you needed help. Yes, what's the phrase? I'm strong in the broken places, or mm. stronger in the broken places. The yeah. Kintsugi method of living. <laughs> but um, yes, that's, um, and it can really be hard to be a minister and be bearing like all of your own burdens and then also trying to help bear the congregation's burdens. So it's really, it's a good thing when you have a good congregation yes. to help you bear those burdens because not all congregations are capable of that, unfortunately. That is true. Well, they're, they're so damaged themselves sometimes or so traumatized themselves sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or just so exhausted that they can't take on one more thing. Agree. Agree. We we are we are deeply and you know almost disturbingly human. I like that phrase, disturbingly yeah. human. Yes. Boy, are we. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, totally. But um, oh, and P.S. We have it's worth saying that we have a beloved regular listener of this podcast. She's a former parishioner of mine. Her name is Bonnie, and she um, now counts every time I say totally while totally. I'm talking to someone. And that is just <laughs> total of your totallys. Yes, like it's, it's a frequent pause word of mine that I wasn't really aware of until she pointed it out to me. So yes. here's for you, Bonnie. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so, as I said, Jess and I also read Born in Crisis and Shaped by Controversy. And that was such a wealth. So, for people who are listening to this, is easily found on Amazon. And I read it on Kindle. And uh, I, so I loved your very very deep and respectful historical approach um you so it, i think most of the people who are going to want to listen to this know this but you are very much an expert in the life of charles wesley as well as his older brother who gets more attention from us methodists john um and so you uh you are able to look at all the inner workings of the early days of Methodism, not only from 
from this like historical lens and from this ecclesial lens about how the church was being formed, but also from this personal lens of what was also going on in the minds and the hearts of John and Charles while they were building this, this, while they were building this movement. Like they are very much real people and not just like oil on canvas paintings that we see at church sometimes. And we forget that. Yes. And, and what you point out, Natalie, is so very true. Um, we we Methodists tend to think well, these these were great spiritual people, so they did great spiritual things. And the truth of the matter is, you know, John Wesley's out there and he runs into drunks three or four times a day. So he writes a treatise on drunkenness, you know, and then he preaches about it. And he runs into sex workers really way more than 18th century Anglican pastors generally do. And so he writes a treatise entitled For an Unhappy Woman. You know, and, and he's they're they're dealing with what's in their face, and to not know what's in their face uh, problematically, um, it's a real problem for us. I think because, I mean, these issues do not go away. How many people do you know that we would consider in a working poor who are working hard and getting poorer and poorer? I mean, those are the what the Methodists, you know, and people of color still struggle for equality. People of privilege still don't want to give up privilege. And all of these classic issues that really were, could have been impediments to the Wesley's ministry actually became foci for their ministry. And what we have is kind of the residual effect of that, if you don't mind me putting it quite that way. And knowing the effect without the cause really kind of gives us license to be different than we ought to be, if you don't mind me saying it quite that way. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the things I appreciated the most about this book is um, that you made it very easily digestible and also something that would apply well to like a congregational study because you put uh, you put uh, questions for discussion at the end of every chapter, which help you as a reader when you're sitting with your Kindle in the kitchen with your three kids screaming behind you to like, okay, did I absorb the right things from this chapter? Thank you for that. Well, thank um, you for saying so. I had one editor I had to actually argue with about those extra two pages every time you know or extra one page every time because their concerns and my concerns were not always the same simply put it that way yeah well and so it is when you make art of any True. kind True. Um, but it, it helped me to to make sure that I was following along appropriately, but it also made it so that um, I could easily take this content and then present it to my congregation um, because, uh, you know, not everybody in the world, uh, you know, can sit down in front of a, in front of a long book and, you know, approach it without being intimidated. Right. But each one of those issues that we're speaking about there there'll be someone in your congregation who resonates with them at such a deep level. It could also be traumatic for them. Of course, of course, yeah. entirely. And, um, and you hear that, Bonnie? I said entirely instead of totally this time. <laughs> but anyway, um, so uh, there was a lot in the book, especially in your discussion questions that were about, so John and Charles were facing these issues and felt incredibly strongly about them. 
Um, and meanwhile, those issues became a deep part of the history of the Methodist movement, and they're still encoded into our book of resolutions yes. and even parts of our discipline and parts of our culture and our behavior as congregations. But over the years, we have really forgotten the context to the point that we're no longer fighting for things that that John really wanted us to fight for. Um, so you go into depth about um, what the gin industry and the production of alcohol in 18th century England was doing to the food supply, that it was taking an extraordinary amount of barley to produce all of this alcohol, and then that barley was effectively being wasted, and it made it so that a loaf of bread was completely unaffordable off of the backs of those same people who were starving and then turning around and buying gin instead and then in a deep state of inebriation either dying from that or going home and being abusive to their spouses and children and so it was this incredibly deep cyclical problem that led John to feel very strongly about okay how about let's just all stop drinking because then we're boycotting this gin industry and putting all of that barley back into the grain industry instead. And then that way we're sparing our families from our violent alcoholic behavior and we're saving the money that we would have spent at the taverns. But 200-ish years later, we look at that and we serve, you know, grape juice instead of wine at communion and we're really separated from what um what a uh, a radical step that was for yes. john he was really it, it, he was really staging a full-on protest and a boycott yes of a very lucrative industry if you yes. will um yes and one of the things we miss is the integral way which many of these issues are interrelated Yes. Class and prejudice and exclusion and economic disparity and uh, the working poor and educational disparity and, the, and women excluded from education in any significant way, let alone people of color. Um, it, these things were so deeply interwoven that it reminds us of the kind of the problems we face. And, and maybe just for a minute, I'm going to check off the issues, if you will, that are highlighted in the first book. Absolutely. Um, the, the crisis of mixing politics and religion, the difficulty of being a pers of, person of faith in the age of reason, the crisis of ecclesiastical slumber and dysfunction, the crisis of rank, class, and privilege, the crisis of economic disparity, the crises facing the working poor, the crisis of the exclusion and inequality of women the crisis caused by racial prejudice, the crisis caused by religious prejudice, and horrific prejudice against Roman Catholics, even to the point of public riots, as you remember, and the crisis caused by debilitating popular culture. And the, the example that uh, Natalie used so well was in fact one of Wesley's culture wars, which had not to do with exclusion of people as so much of this culture war language does today, but with the impoverishment and the death of people. Yeah. yeah. So when it, this is kind of interesting that, um, so 
I recently, um, because I'm obsessed with the show called The Midwife, I recently read the memoirs of the woman who um, the show is based on. And she got a lot into the history of the East End um, and of the people who, the nuns who were working there, um, and uh, the history of people that she knew who had grown up in the Victorian workhouses. And it strikes me how a lot of the issues that were causing the problems of the um, working poor in John Wesley's time were still going on in the early 20th century, and they had to yes. do with the enclosures. So people were having to leave farming, which they always knew, and they were having to go to cities in order to find work. The cities were overcrowded. There was not enough work for them. There was not yeah. enough work in the docks. There was not enough work. Um, etc. And then the rich people were saying, oh, these lazy, indolent, poor people. And it's like, yes. no, they're not poor on purpose. There's not enough work for them. And maybe the work that's available isn't stuff they know how to do because they grew up learning how to farm. So it's um, pretty fascinating that, you know, this problem was going on in England for like 200 years. This was like yes. ongoing. Yeah. And Wesley, how the John Wesley's writings are one of the first places where we find people of, of class, if you will, and education, not blaming the poor for their poverty. And, and in yes. fact, during his lifetime, they um, persecuted poverty uh, with laws that they required people to go to workhouses and poorhouses and so on. Um, mm -hmm. They criminalized poverty, as is the yes. word I was looking for, which Wesley found to be absolutely outrageous. In fact, John Wesley's father was himself imprisoned for poverty when John Wesley was a young man. And this embarrassment and the difficulties that caused his family stayed in his heart, and I'm sure in Charles's heart also, lifelong. So they refused to think of poor people as indolent, as uncouth, as somehow criminals and, and uh, parasites on society, and that kind of language we use when people talk about so-called social entitlements and so on. I mean, it's utter mm -hmm. BS. People who are poor mm -hmm. do not intend to be poor. That's the bottom line. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting today because we still find ways of criminalizing poor people. We do. Um, somebody we said do. if it's a if it's a fine, then it's criminalizing the poor, not the rich. If the pot, you know, if the pen penalty for breaking a law is a fine. And that's still a problem in the United States. It was one of the things that led to the riots in Ferguson, other than Michael Brown's shooting. But this this whole city was making its money off of the fines and you know arrests of poor people for traffic infractions. Um, and that was in 2014. Um, and what's interesting and, about the yeah. Wesleys is each of these things is a spiritual problem at basis, a yes. theological problem at basis. And most people aren't willing to recognize that. Even religious people aren't really willing to recognize, if you will, the spiritual undertone of not considering another as yourself, of not mm -hmm. according dignity to people who are, look other than you do and who act differently than you do. Yeah. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and the Wesleys saw this avalanche of social trauma and problems and recognized that at basis, these are spiritual, uh, religious problems, Christian problems, and yet the solutions are have to be kind of real-world solutions, you know? Don't yes. go home and just pray about being hungry. We've got to come up with not only a mechanism right. to 
cause, solve that in the short term, we have to ask where poverty comes from. What causes mm -hmm. poverty? Why people can't get an education? What causes that? We see the results. What causes that? How can we address that? And I don't mm -hmm. see enough people, and I hear you, I'm borderline on preaching, as you can tell, <laughs> but I don't see enough people who are asking the second question. We have a lot of people, thank God, who will hand another person a loaf of bread. We don't have very many people who are saying, well, okay, but where is this problem coming from? And what is the community's of faith's response to stop the cycle of poverty, to stop mm -hmm. the cycle of childhood hunger, to stop the cycle of malnutrition, to stop yes. the cycle of work wage slavery, of exclusion of women, of exclusion of people of color. Mm -hmm. it, we, we don't take the second step. And that's why we mm -hmm. keep seeing these things come back again and again and again, because the person that you and I feed this Tuesday night in our church basement, they're hungry tomorrow. They're hungry yes. again next week. And we really mm -hmm. haven't addressed that other than help them live a week further. Yes, and I, I absolutely. Mean, yeah. I, I mean, within terms of like, when I was reading this, I was struck by the ways in which um, somebody like William Barber today and the Poor People's Campaign in a lot of ways resembles kind yes. of what the, the, the Wesleys were trying to do. And yes. um, also reading about how, you know, the rich people going to church and how church kind of increasingly became reserved for rich people. Yeah, let's rent um, the pews. Yeah. And it reminded me a lot of um, there's a podcast called Straight White American Jesus, where he talks <laughs> about cool kids church and how it's like these suburban kind of maybe smaller, but maybe mega churches where everybody there is kind of like the cool kids used to be in high school and how they'll talk about certain things in the pulpit, but they will never talk about social justice or poverty yeah. or any of those things that are actually, you know, definitely spiritual issues. They'll talk about personal piety issues like pornography, yes. but they will never talk about the larger systemic spiritual diseases that we have. Yeah. yeah imagine and that's by design. Sorry, imagine you ask your people to stop buying Coca-Cola because they do exploitive things with their with their massive income. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine imagine asking your people to boycott Chick-fil-A because they're discriminatory Ooh. in their hiring prices practices. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. they go through the roof. That's that's inconvenient, you know. Oh, don't take away my mm -hmm. waffle fries. There you are. There you are. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's see, a really that's the, that's the gin boycott of early Methodism, right? That's is. exactly what that's about. It is, know? and it's, it's it, it, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's I'm sorry to because, you, Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like really excited. Oh yeah, about no, this book so am I. Stuff, so you can tell. Um, I yeah, right. Um, I one of the things that I've noticed about my congregation is actually that they're hungry. I think to really think about this from these perspectives. Yes. So um, yes. there are a lot of I think people in our congregations that are seeing these social ills and they're seeing these things in their community and they're like, "Well, I want to do something, but I don't know yes. how." Yes, and, that is so. That is so. The thing, Jessica, people mm -hmm. feel no. They feel disempowered. And yes. Oh my God. Yes. Energy. And so mm -hmm. our job as pastoral leaders is to find ways, even if they're small steps, to help people mm -hmm. find their empowerment. And, yes. and frankly, if we would all do that, we would have the sort of systemic changes we need. Yeah. Amen. Totally.
Amen. And that'll preach. (laughs) It will preach. And it does preach. I'm, I'm struck by, and you come to this note several times in the discussion questions of your book. I'm struck by how we take this fervor and then translate it to how we're leading our denomination right now. Yes. Um, We are in a fertile ground where we can be growing into new directions, especially as a conference in the wake of receiving a new bishop. And, um, you know, we're in a post pandemic season of hopeful growth. Um, But still, you know, I lament when I come home from things like annual conference gatherings and clergy gatherings and things like that, because, and and I can hear Justin Jess's sigh, what, you know, the, the feeling that I have, that I have, I have gripe texted Jessica and Emily about at length. So they know, but like, and I have as well. (laughs) And it's just very, I go to annual conference. I see um, that we hire a professional photographer to take really glamorous looking and yet incredibly boring pictures of a bunch of white people in a church basement putting things together in a flood bucket and then picking up their flood buckets and delivering them to the mission hub in Syracuse. And I say that with no um, no offense to any of those ministries because they're extremely important and those flood buckets save lives. So no questions asked there. But we want to focus on mission work that can be done by just taking a shopping list to Home Depot and then by handing some supplies over to somebody we already know and that don't involve deep change and also confrontation of perhaps even our own hand in the systems that have made people suffer. So like as Jessica will bring up periodically in our episodes, uh, you know, we want to address the flood after it happens, but we don't want to look at the climate change that's making the flooding and what we're doing to make that climate change happen. And similarly, John Wesley felt so, so, so strongly about a couple of things that we now have just sort of circled in our book of resolutions as important Methodist hot topics, but don't think anything about. Like, we will circulate even like memes amongst ourselves saying, well, gosh, these, you know, these poor people that want us to give them food. I mean, if you could buy beer and cigarettes and scratch off tickets, then you could afford groceries. And like the the reason why the beer and the cigarettes and the scratch off tickets are on the shopping list in the first place is because those are all addictive industries. Those industries also, yeah, have exploited, like, the, they have exploited everything there is to exploit out of the poor. Like we put the scratch off tickets in the stores in low in low income neighborhoods so that people will buy them. Like we target the poorest of the poor communities with the gambling industry. And we always have. Well, I mean, scratch off tickets. Like I say this as somebody like my dad has bought lottery tickets like twice a week for my entire length of my my life. Okay. And I, I have joked with him. I'm like, dad, if you put all that money into a retirement account, think of how much money you have, but it's like, it's praise on the sense of hope. You know what I mean? This is for people that don't see any other way that they could have a windfall that they could retire. 
Yeah. Yes. That's what the lottery system does. And that's playing exactly. on that that yeah. that sense of despair. And that yes. that is the reason why Methodists don't support gambling. We yes. want to focus on sort of the personal holiness aspect of it that like, oh, but you don't want to be the type of person that goes into a casino that's bad. So we want to focus on that. And, and there's something to be said about the personal morality piece, but that was not the that was not the the, the big sticking point for John and Charles. And it's not, that's not what made it evil. What made it evil yeah. was its result, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And we are blind to the result and our own complicity in it. Yeah. Yes. So, me so meanwhile, you know, we 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 gather together as Upper New York Methodists, and we sing some pretty praise songs led by a praise band. Go the praise band from Casawasco, they rock. But God bless them. <laughs> you know, yes. And then we will we will collect some big offerings in a hat. And we will be able to write some checks to some organizations because we raised the money for it. Um, it, it you know, meanwhile, we, we, we've really got workers in the field that want to change the world. They really yeah. want to. But we've just lost something in the in, in the passion and in the heart of all of this in, in the first place. We don't we don't know that that this started as a, a movement to stick it to the man. Yeah, I mean, we have become the church the Wesley's yes. left. I mean, let's be like, very honest. We about have, become, we have the become, become the church Absolutely. the Wesley's left. Correct. Yeah. So, so how I mean, do we how do we change that? What do well, what can we yes. bring to you know to Upper New York and to all Methodists you know across yeah, our and I, I think there's some some hints in the book. But frankly, that's why I put the time into it. I mean, if we mm -hmm. actually were serious about buying and selling honestly to each other as people of faith and excluding our purchases from people who do not respect our faith point of view in terms of inclusion and empowerment and enablement and so on we would i mean there are nine there are nine million of us left here in this country we are a constituency you know yeah. we could actually do something about the way people are exploited by this company or that process mm -hmm. or this product we could actually do that if we had the guts to do so but we don't we can't mm -hmm. ask people to make sacrifices even to the point of where they shop or how they do business and that was paramount to the what methodist class rules if you're going to be mm -hmm. a methodist you're going to buy and sell honestly and you're going to prefer to buy and sell to other methodists who share your point of view mm -hmm. we know that the fundamentalists have got this down look what they've done the last 10 years the last 15 mm -hmm. years they've the figured last this out. 50 years yeah, yeah they have figured this out and so america is looking like them rather than like we methodists mm -hmm. which by that i mean inclusion respecting the poor cherishing empowerment cherishing enablement and uplift spiritual economic physical uplift and you know what's interesting too and this is like reflects you know our discussions with other faith leaders of other faith traditions and other denominations is that there are a lot of people out there, you know, I think about the, the New York Council of Churches. There are a lot of people out there that share these, um, these same uh, kind of um, values and want would want to participate with us in that kind of thing. Presbyterians, Lutherans, um, Jewish people, 
um, Muslims, there are lots of people out there yes. who have that same it's, kind of like yes. mentality that they want a better society and they would team up with us. It wouldn't just be Methodists. It would be lots of people. Right. But if we're not doing it, then who is going to? Because this exactly. is in our DNA. And that's the yes. point of this book. We have stopped mm -hmm. being what is in our DNA to be. And we yes. have the very same opportunity now because of these catastrophes that we've faced to start again to start mm -hmm. afresh, to actually be who Christ has called us to be. Do we have the guts to do that? That's the question, really. So actually, a couple weeks ago, we had a church council meeting where we talked about, um, so we had had some, our, our pastor did a series of informational meetings where we talked about, okay, this is what's going on in the Methodist church right now. Um, she didn't have, and we gave people time to say, Yes, we want to call a vote to leave. No, we don't, blah, blah, blah. Not a single person came up and said, we want to call a vote to leave. So church council says, we are voting to remain proudly United Methodist. And we put that on our sign outside. Yep. And I think it's kind of giving like this whole thing where like you have to choose, you have to decide, da, da, da. It's actually kind of lit a little bit of a fire under our congregation yeah. and our it, congregational yeah. leadership to say, yeah, we are going to stand forth and, and claim this as our congregation. This is who we are. Yes, so we're um, with this. Yeah. And um, I am actually really thankful that you did this book because I'm going to recommend it to my pastor as saying, let's read this together as a congregation and say, you know, how do we, you know, look at this? We know that these things are happening. Similar things are happening in our own day and age. And why don't, what does it mean for us to live into that? Um, and we're actually, we voted to become a safe haven church as nice. well for nice. folks who may choose to leave um, churches that are leaving the Methodist mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. you know, that's, we are like, you know, we don't see it as like an opportunity necessarily to do anything other than just like be there for people, you know? So, but we are like, okay, let's help wherever we can. So well, you raise a very important point, Jessica. I think that this, mm -hmm. this challenge that we're facing with the division and so on is really an opportunity for us in a very radical way, in at least two ways. It gives us a chance to redefine or to reaffirm who we are because of mm -hmm. who we are not. And that mm -hmm. self-definition process is important for individuals and it's important for communities. And the second mm -hmm. thing is, it, uh, it reminds us that we are people who step into the breach. And rather mm -hmm. than lamenting a problem, we find ways to resolve or ameliorate a problem. And so mm -hmm. what is a horrific challenge for us is also a pretty spectacular opportunity if we lean into it with the right attitude. Agreed, agreed. It just like it was so interesting how just like looking that at that problem as a church council was like, oh, well, we have the opportunity to say, yeah, this is who we are. This is who we want to be. Yeah, if they don't want to, if they don't want you, you're welcome here. Yep. You know, we embrace yep. you. We're the people mm -hmm. who embrace people. Mm hmm. So and we're not even a reconciling congregation. We might become some be. at, at some point, but, be. you know, you don't yep, have to you, be so one step at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And I've, you know, I've said to others in the past, we are a reconciling congregation, but 
I, I, you know, I've said to others in the past, I'm going to repeat it, that I, I'm really hoping that we're going to continue to move in a direction where you won't have to be a reconciling congregation because that's going to be redundant. That's, an, that's, that's a, mm -hmm. a, a weird term. Why do we even have to talk about that? That's endemic to who we are. In exactly. Other words, but by the way, we're also a, a Christ congregation or we're also we believe in god <laughs> congregation i mean yeah it's superfluous to even have to say that it seems to me or should be yeah unfortunately we're not we're not there yet because we i are not I, there by a long no shot. i we our church regularly gets con gets a uh thrown hate darts from the community for well, the, you the, know the yeah. church i attend down here a lot two weeks ago we had our rainbow flag burned down and oh, we had our no. black lives matter matter flag pulled down banner pulled down uh. and on the church lawn you know and and basically we said okay well that's 200 bucks you know we bought some new flags and consecrated the space and put them back up again you know yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah I mean, what are you gonna do you're gonna determine who we are by something like that no you're crazy we're not that this is who we are and we get to decide yep. who we are we get to say who we are you don't get yeah. to decide mm -hmm. that we exactly. Do. I'm yep. almost and I'm almost nutty enough that especially because of the act of burning, I would have tried to scoop up those ashes from the lawn and use them for the following Ash Wednesday. Although you'd have to you'd have to step right in and, and get them immediately. Yeah, before so, it rained, like at the yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day down yeah. Here. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is probably the least important thing in the whole book, but it just like really cracked me up. The um the thing about the guys, like the the section about the fops and the dandies, um, uh -huh. especially this, what is this, my son Tom, with like the gigantic wig on his head? Yeah. Like, I feel like, and it's just so funny because every well, that, well, that was like gender every, bending, right? I mean, you recognize yes. that, right? Yeah. yeah. And I feel like every generation, and you know, people have looked this up in in newspapers and stuff. Every generation, or even multiple times a generation. There's always some kind of crisis around masculinity. Are our boys masculine enough? Are they manly enough? Well, let's buy oh, them some guns girlish. to prove it. Yeah, let's yeah. buy them some they're guns too, to prove it. Oh, they're too weak. They're too feminine, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this has literally been going on for as long as there have been people. They, people have You're been really worried gonna that enjoy boys are two. too soft. You're really going to enjoy volume two when we take on these specific issues that you're raising. Oh, I look so, forward to it. Yeah, um, and I was just like, oh, come on. You know, it just like really cracked me up when I saw that giant wig. I was like, oh. <laughs> and that was and, that was that was a newspaper cartoon, right? I mean, that yeah. that's a, that's 18th century period art. Yes. Yeah. And for that Which matter, I'm so when, glad you yeah. include those. Those are so Oh yeah, no, the, the no, the pictures were wonderful. This is a book this is a book where the pictures are invaluable. But it, it also kind of it, thinking in that direction um it, it because the irony is that that we have in society are so palpable and yet we're not aware of them that yes. one group of people who will say we need to man up and toughen up our boys we need to make them real tough violent americans and we need to make them like the founding fathers and then you know get a picture of the founding fathers and they're all wearing powdered wigs and like yeah. tights and like cute little buckle shoes Benjamin <laughs> Franklin was like a party animal Yes. Like he went yes. to France yes. and just was like hanging out with the ladies, you know. That is some rugged masculinity right there. There are um, some really but, unusual 
dichotomy, shall we say. <laughs> but uh, but mm -hmm. that also um, leans me into a, a direction that I wanted to pick your brain about because you could be a fount of wisdom on this too, especially leaning into where your book dovetails from it. Because so John Wesley himself, and he lived during a, uh, a, a you know, well, not that we don't, but he lived during a politically tumultuous time. Good. Yes. Did. And it had a whole lot to say about the, you know, about this conflict between the Tories and the Whigs. And then as he launched a Methodist movement that then started setting sail for America. Um, and then it, during his lifetime, the Revolutionary War began, which he really yes. frowned upon. He did not think yeah. that that was uh, that that was something that we should do. And then the United States became its own independent nation. All of that happened by the time he died. That is correct. Um, so he he had a lot to say about these these interweaving relationships between faith and politics he did not believe unlike what a lot of people uh try to proclaim these days that faith and politics should be these separate offices that don't talk to each other that is he correct believed, let's add privilege yeah. to the list he also yes. included privilege in that same conversation Yes, and he believed that it was all inherently connected and yes. to try to say, oh, no, 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 we don't talk about politics in our well, church, you know. We don't do that because it might cause people to be upset and, and church today is all about being comfortable. It's yeah. not about being Christian. Exactly, exactly. And so he so he he really he really hit that one right on the head. And then he, he also Even looked when he at, was wrong, he was out there trying to, to analyze things that way. Natalie. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then he was also looking into this relationship between what does it mean to belong to your country and to have pride in your country and to have identity in your country at a time when all of those identities are really being rapidly shifted yes. um, and then also belong to your religion. So now, 200 years later, we're in a very different place, but no less tumultuous, where yes. uh, we have many people who believe that there is this uh, inherent connection between being American, being Christian, um, this prevailing belief that that keeps getting discounted, and yet it keeps popping right back up like a weed, that the founding fathers were very Christian and intended for this country to be Christian, and that also that the sense of, you know, high white privilege and also toxic masculinity is just all part of it. It is just one really nasty sandwich that Americans just keep putting on a plate and serving to the most vulnerable of people. Yeah, so well, I, what do we I do with that sandwich that's well you know not eat it obviously uh because it'll give us indigestion but i think the problem yeah, i mean wesley's language will not help us too much here because for wesley being christian was being count countercultural, right yeah. being christian for wesley following jesus was being countercultural, and what we've done basically is bought into all of the cultural ills and then called called it christian nationalism so i mean in a way you'd almost have to call people to be spiritual or something different than what they're calling themselves in order to dissect what these unhealthy alliances are um wesley's analysis is not always correct i mean he started out in favor of American rights, those things that led up to the Revolutionary War. But when the when the rhetoric went to radical individual rights, as he heard it, he saw that as unchristian. 
that radical assertion of individual rights over against the rights of the community, over against the rights of the voiceless is immoral in his mind. And so now when we use violence to force that rhetoric, that felt to him doubly immoral. Well, as an American, I don't agree with his assessment of the situation, but I agree with his rhetoric about radical individual rights at the exclusion of the good of the whole, of the good of the community, of the good of this voiceless, and at the radical individual rights at the at the detriment to the dispossessed, you know, that those those things are really worth talking about, it seems to me. And um, and as I pointed out, these, and as you pointed out also, Natalie, these things are integral, entry, uh, interconnected in a, in a way that is difficult to parse them out. And so, um, you know, it's good to be proud of America. But what are you proud of, really? What part of that? mixture what part what part of that banquet that is our american bounty are you proud of are you proud of the oppression of individual indigenous people or women are you proud of of radical capitalism that exploits you know the, the least privileged in our society just let's be proud to be americans yes but what piece of that american smorgasbord what part of that banquet are you proud about you know um and if you're going to say you're an american christian Really, some of the things I've named are not things to be proud of. You know, they're they're kind of the problems that we've caused ourselves more than anything else. And the good thing is, as Americans, we have the power and the potential to be different. That is in our own hands. That doesn't have to come from the top. However many, some people, 39% of the population would like to see that happen. We, the people, have the power in our hands to be the nation, the country, the community, we we feel we are called to be. So I I don't I dispute that this is a Christian nation. I dispute that it ever was a Christian nation. I would love to see it be a more Christian nation. So, right. <laughs> so that's kind of what I would like to see. And for me, being a Christian nation is not an exclusion or being more Christian about the way we do our nation is not at the exclusion of our Jewish brothers and sisters and our Islamic brothers and sisters and our agnostic brothers and sisters. We're not, to be a Christian is not to exclude others. It is not to persecute others. Those are sub-Christian attitudes. How does that even play in a nation that claims to be Christian? So I say, not you're not Christian. You're not, if you were Christian a little bit, it would be a whole lot better than what it is now. So I, I'm not taking on the notion of Christian nation. I'm just taking on, on the notion that you are ever were, are or ever were a Christian nation, or at least serious about being that. Yeah. Amen. Because I, I, I remember when there are people, you know, when there are people treating um, the folks coming to the border and like caging them up them and cages. stuff. And I was cages. just like, this is, people pointed out, this is Christian on Christian violence. Okay, this is Christians doing harm to what may be evangelical Pentecostal and Catholic people who are a different color. Um, whenever you hear about, you know, some white nationalist coming to a place where black people are and shooting them, that's We're like Christian on Christian violence. PA, you know, I mean, kill mm -hmm. 11 people in a synagogue. I mean, really? That's okay. Mm -hmm. And we could say those are aberrations and they are, but aberrations come out of the ordinary, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it just is fascinating to me how 
there's um there's the kind of the rhetoric you know you're not a real christian if you do yeah 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 um but at the same time um there's like the also this rhetoric like you're not a real american if you are x y and z and so what does that mean to not be a real american like i am being told all the time i'm not a real american because i don't subscribe to certain things and that people are like you live in a bubble you democrat and I'm like i live in a republican town in a Republican, you know, congressional district. My state senator is Republican. My county is run by Republicans. So I, if anything, I live in a red bubble, not a blue bubble, even though I live in a blue state. So it's just fascinating to me why who gets defined as real versus not real. And, and, and this is back to the early conversation that. we had about our freedom to define ourselves, you mm -hmm. know? And I, I think in the very same way, that, that we have, the gay people or queer people rightly say they are allowed to have pride. And the way black people were allowed and encouraged to say black is beautiful. We mm -hmm. also need to find the courage to say, being a Christian is being this, and it's not being that. And to the mm -hmm. people who think they are, I think they have some confrontation coming to them, if you will. Mm -hmm rather than let them have the term i'm willing to fight for that term um mm -hmm. and i think that's exactly what we need to be doing um speaking mm -hmm. about what we need to be doing we need to be wrapping this up oh of okay. course of course john so then the the last question we always ask in these interviews and it will be delightful to hear what you have to say is of all of the things that you could tell the world about god what oh. one thing would you pick above anything else? I would tell them again who God is. God is love. And that means that God accepts, God enables, God forgives, and God embraces. And then I would take a minute to tell them who God is not. God is not the church. God is not the people who often represent him or her and claim to. God is bigger than all of that, because most of the people I meet, as you ladies do also, I suspect, who have a beef with God, really have a beef with certain people in the church or the church's uh, agenda toward them. And they really don't have a beef with God, but they're not sophisticated enough in their feelings or in their thinking to, re to realize that. So again, God is love. Jesus Christ is God love incarnate that is the message i would like to leave you with Amen. that is beautiful and like john we could keep you here for six more hours and keep talking to you yeah. but i suspect you probably have a life so <laughs> to. but thank you very much and i've enjoyed being with you ladies as always um Absolutely. it's good to see you again good to see good yes. to see you be with your not see but to be with your listeners as well Oh, yes. And this is going to be an absolute uh, an absolute gift to those that listen to this. So thank you so, so, so much for your time and your heart. My yes, pleasure. Thank God you. Be with you. Yes. Me to you, too. too. Peace you. on yes. your journey. Thank you. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.